everyone and welcome to Making the Scene, where each episode my guest and I talk about one sequence from a film and discuss it from every and any angle we can find. Why does it work? How does it work? Great film is alchemy, the result of an interaction between writing, performance, light, sound, sets, and editing. On Making the Scene, we try to understand that alchemy through the lens of a single scene, to understand the director's approach to their film by examining how and why they built this one specific moment. The guests are my choice, but the scenes are theirs. So today, my guest is editor, streamer, and um, relatively recent but very admired uh, film lover friend, Abby Phelps. Um, As soon as I began putting together this season of Making the Scene, I knew I wanted Abby to be a part, and I'm very excited that she accepted the invitation to join me today. Today, Abby has chosen a scene from Baz Luhrmann's 2001 musical classic, Moulin Rouge. Abby, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing okay. Really happy to be here. It's really awesome to have you. I'm really excited to talk about this film. Um, I've been a fan of it for a while, um, and this is a great scene. So actually, why don't you tell um, us what scene you've chosen and maybe put it into context of the film? Yeah, so scene that I chose is El Tango de la Roxanne from Moulin Rouge. Uh, This is not even... Not necessarily what I would call my favorite scene of the movie, just because this is like one of my favorite movies of all time. So there's a lot of scenes I love, but in terms of like the film's formal qualities, I think it's the most interesting and certainly the most gives the most to talk about. Um, it's it's sort of the 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 second act midpoint of of the film, where after the sort of just breathless rush of the first act, things have have gotten more tense, and this is where the 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 darker emotions really take hold and, and sort of inform the rest of the picture uh and it's a, a fusion of form and emotion that i think is uh the the most out there the film ever gets in ways that are really fascinating to me um and in ways that you either will love or hate um i, I have very dear friends who this movie is one of their most loathed movies of all time and i adore it so it's it's one of those things where either way when you watch it you're going to feel something inspired in you whether or not it's something you want inspired in you so fantastic i you're it's not surprising Baz Luhrmann is one of those directors who maybe the most of any of the films i've talked about on this podcast where his his approach is so specific and a lot like it's not just that he has a point of view his point of view stylistically is um let's say maybe aggressive um when his choices and and so like that it's not surprising that lands um great for some people and horribly for other people um yeah he uh it's i i remember in in college i saw not the whole thing but bits and pieces of his great gatsby and at the time i was like just appalled like what are you doing this is not an adaptation this is just you do whatever you want um and then when i saw moulin rouge in i saw it for the first time it was like a pristine 35 millimeter print um at a local theater and it was like one of the last things i saw before the pandemic hit and for the first like half hour i was like i genuinely have no idea if i'm going to want to walk out of this or not and then about 40 minutes in it stabilized and i was like okay wait no this is awesome um but like because of that first time experience i could really easily see why anyone who hates it 
does hate it because it is a lot. It's it's interesting that you had that reaction because, and I have a question about your your um, other films you've watched with Baz in a second. But yeah, I I um his films have a tendency to start off at maybe their most frenetic. Um, and so if you especially if you aren't into him, but even if you are, they can be pretty alienating because he doesn't really let you come into his style. He pretty much just starts throwing at you at the at the outset um so i i I think i i was a fan of his coming into this movie and even i um struggled maybe for the first 20 minutes or so so i totally understand the reaction you had um it's good of him really to just be like if you if you don't like this then i'm I'm telling you now get out of the theater i'm telling you exactly what this movie is going to be so you can leave if you want to (laughs) so are you um am i right i looked at your letterbox because i was curious because baz is such like a um, particular director. I, if I'm right, you've only seen Gatsby and Australia of his otherwise. Is that correct? That's correct. And Australia was so long ago that I don't really have many fully formed memories of it. Um, so I, I've never done Strictly Ballroom. I've never done Romeo plus Juliet. I need to do both of them. It's just I haven't, they're ones I haven't gotten to yet. Um, so this is definitely the one of his that's like most fixed in my memory as like, yeah, a, a complete piece of art. Um, yeah, and I should, re- I should revisit Gatsby too, honestly, because like I said, the last time I saw it was probably like seven years ago, and I didn't know anything about anything then, so <laughs> should give it another shot, probably. You know what's interesting is that I am the opposite. I've seen Strictly Ballroom, Romeo and Juliet, and this, but have not seen Australia or Gatsby, um, and I think that's interesting because in some ways Moulin Rouge, from afar, feels like a pivot point of his career because it's the last time he worked with up to that point, longtime editor Jill Bilcock. Um, and editing is such a um, distinct aspect of his filmmaking that I, I'm, I'm curious. I'm going to have to watch them recently. But like, so my context coming in is his like run up to Moulin Rouge. And it's interesting. Your context is like the run out from it. So I, I don't know how much that'll come up, but I'm, I'm interested because, um, you know, Bilcock's editing in this, as we've talked, you know, is, is, a, is kind of a thing in this movie oh yes especially in the sequence <laughs> yes yes exactly it's really um full bore on this so well, that's cool I, I wanted to validate verify that before we went on because i was i was interesting um so you know as we get into this this is actually an interesting scene to discuss because uh it's a rare film and a rare scene where almost every formal and stylistic element is kind of on full blast um from costuming sets to lighting and music and um this scene really goes all in on all of them so we could start in a bunch of places so i'm curious where would you like to start on this film or on this scene rather um so I think a good place to start this being a musical is the the music that lays the foundation of the scene and how it's sort of integral to the ethos of what he's doing, um, which is, you know, I, I, I love how uh, Jake Cole on Letterboxd and his review of this from a few years ago was like, this is this is the ideal movie for the LimeWire generation and the iPod generation and that it is basically just the sensation of skipping from one song to the next to get the high points. Um, and like the... The story of how of how Lerman um, conceived of this movie is he he was in India and he and some friends of his wound up um, going into a, a theater I think just to escape the heat to for this Bollywood movie and there were no subtitles and they just completely were swept into it and understood every single thing going on because the emotions were so heightened and he was like I want to I want to do this in a Western style and a Western milieu but but translate that that heightened emotion and the way that he found to do that. And Moulin Rouge is 
famously, it's a movie where none of the songs are original to the film. Even Come What May is not actually written for this film. It was written for Romeo plus Juliet and then just didn't get used. Um, and and so already there's a pre-existing familiarity there where it's like the, the emotion is programmed into the songs because viewers already know what to feel. Um, and then instead of just keeping the song in and of themselves, it's a mashup approach where just every single bit of the song is taken for maximum effect and then punched immediately into another song. You know, the, the, the highest example of this is the Elephant Love Medley, where it's not any sort of a complete song. It's no more than like 30 seconds of each song making it up before it jumps to the next one. Uh, but even this one, it's it's not a complete just single work. It starts with Roxanne, um, but the it's famously it's the Tango de la Roxanne, and they actually, the, the main chorus part, they take uh, another piece, original lyrics set to a much older tango piece of music and sort of combine them. Um, so it's, a, it's an example of that approach of just taking disparate elements and putting them together to make the viewer feel all the things at once. Um, and that, as the bedrock, informs the editing and the cross-cutting and the cinematography um, all sort of spring from that same ethos of just taking all these different individual emotions and making them into like this stew that is either going to alienate, alienate you completely or just suck you in and make you unable to escape it because of how big it is. Um, I, the, the, the song, I had not known that the, um, the sort of counter counter melody of this, um, which is, um, yeah, Ewan McGregor's character is the, is the, um, his, his bit is the song I think you're referring to Tanguera, um, is the like, kind of classical tango. And I didn't realize that it wasn't original, that it had been that until today. Um, I had bought this streaming uh, about two months ago, and I realized I had audio commentary, so I, I put it on for the scene and, and literally just learned that um, last night when I was watching it, which kind of – so I, I, I spent about 15 minutes going down the rabbit hole of listening to different versions of Tanguera because um, it's also um, filled with bombast relative to its original form. Mm-hmm. And, and both of them blend together beautifully. Like I – in, in in general, the you know '80s rock, I'm 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 not so huge on, and I think, yeah, I I think that in it Roxanne in this version, even if it were just the Roxanne portion, would be superior to the original recording. But especially when it's when it's in juxtaposition to that classical melody, they really they they really elevate each other. Um, and that also gets to something that's interesting about this film is usually I I cannot stand jukebox musicals because there's no like sense of consistency, right? You know, it's just it, it's literally is a jukebox. It's all these disparate elements that don't really mesh together. But Moulin Rouge is an exception. I think one of the reasons is that the the bombastic orchestration is so consistent from song to song that it introduces a sense of cohesion even when there really isn't any to be had. You know, they're pulling from so many different decades and styles and genres, uh, sometimes in the same song, but that 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 orchestration is so is so consistent that it makes everything feel of an emotional piece even though it's sometimes hundreds of years apart i i i appreciate you calling out the jukebox musical thing it's and uh, you're like consistently staying ahead of my questions which i i love because i was i wanted to talk about that <laughs> a little bit because it's so it's so present in the scene this real this hit right around the time the jukebox musical was becoming kind of a thing um i think like mama mia hit in 99 and they were only like three or four years off from like jersey boys and and other things and if i'm right you're kind of a a musical nerd like I am um, to a degree and I have the same impression as you as, as jukebox musicals and it's interesting because just like what you were saying this for me hit entirely differently because even though it's all 
um, existing songs, the reorchestration makes them feel like original songs. And in this case, that juxtaposition with Tanguera and the original lyrics, it's it's not Roxanne anymore. I mean, obviously it's built off of Roxanne, but it's so far away from the impact of Roxanne as a song that it's now a part of the story of this musical as opposed to a song that's dropped in to as like a needle drop. Mm-hmm. And I think something else that's really that that makes it less obnoxious for me the whole concept is in 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 many lesser jukebox musicals the way they would have incorporated the song is they would have had a character named Roxanne as an excuse to have the song <laughs> about her whereas this explicitly uses an artificial device to work the song in so it's 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 already it's like a, a hall of mirrors where it's already a metatextual thing uh, on top of the fact that it's something that was not created for the movie. And embracing that artificiality really makes it work in a way that it wouldn't if they were trying to contrive a story around it and make it seem like it fits, like shoehorn it in. And and they they work into this song, interestingly. The way the music um, plays out is also very different. I, I Actually, I would say not just from jukebox musicals. I, uh, some of what goes wrong in musicals, in my opinion, is – um there's like two there's two branches there's like the song tells the the story that's coming up and then there is the dialogue tells the story and then they sing a song about reiterating the thing they already just said which is like (laughs) like loathed by me i can't take it um and and this manages to not just be better than most jukebox musicals it's also in what i would consider like the right musical tradition of of expressing something about the story that could not have been expressed a different way and the, and had the same impact and i i love that about their use of music in this scene yeah it's really impressive for a movie of this size that it's not sung through there's obviously por- big portions that are just dialogue but there's music pretty consistently punctuating the whole thing and you know a lot of movie musicals when they they make that transition part of what they do is they carve down the number of songs if it's a stage adaptation and and make it so that you know it gradually becomes less and less until like the the, the third act is pretty much just action and dialogue. Um, you know, it's, so even some stage musicals are conceived that way. You know, I, I love West Side Story with all my being, um, but it is notable that it basically slides to, to saturated with music to much more about, you know, different kinds of scenes taking place in the, in the final half. And this one doesn't really get there. The entire climax is, is done through song in a way that you don't see that often. And, and it's really, really impressive, I think, that they managed to sustain that pitch through the whole thing rather than tapering off so they can let more conventional storytelling pick up the slack for them. Yes, I'm, I'm so with you on that. Um, and, and, you know, something about this particular scene that I think is is really great with their music is I think this is the only song that uh, Jacek Komen, I don't, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, who plays the uh, unconscious Argentinian, as he is credited, um, <laughs> just attacks this song with uh, oh, yes. gravel and... Um, I, there's something to the the tenor of the way this like the way his voice is that that tells the story of how fraught everything is in this moment that I'm I find fascinating. He's a very distinct singer in this scene. Yeah, and it's it's especially interesting because he throughout the movie he's presented as a foil to McGregor because quite literally McGregor takes over his role because he's an archaeoleptic. Um and in and in the rest of the in the this the show that the Moulin Rouge is putting on, he's playing the character that is actually McGregor. And McGregor, in contrast to him, has a very, very clean voice and like a much more traditional leading man part. Um, and so having it so that you, when you when you hear him sing at such a contrast uh, really helps to to further embed that image of their 
it's it's not that they're they're foils to each other so much in terms of the the main plot. Obviously, that's more McGregor and the Duke, but it's still this this image of the other half of McGregor, the more theatrical side that comes through really well. There, the and then we get to the end of this. It's be, keeping with the music because I'm I'm I'm. I actually have a question for you because I couldn't figure it out. The Duke gets into the song near the end as we are getting into the end of this sequence um, and things are getting very um, overlappy. Um, the Duke singing, What do you know what melody the Duke is singing? What is he coming in with? Because I kept trying to hear it and I could not nail down what he was singing. It's I've always heard it, and it's hard because the the actual soundtrack version of the song it it's a compressed version from the film, and it doesn't have the Duke's part in there. So you kind of just have to watch the film where think where the mix is a bit more muddled. Um, as far as I can tell, he's doing a counterpoint to the to the to Ewan's part, um, where they're 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 singing the same part in different you know different uh, lines. Which which is is pretty key to what's going on in that the the way the thing this is ultimately building to, especially in terms of uh, color composition, is drawing a direct parallel between the two of them becoming the same person by the conclusion of the scene, which is which is really vital. Um, yeah, so I think as far as I can tell, that's what he's he's doing is just directly mirror, mirroring Ewan's lines in a different harmonizing line versus a melodic. Uh, let's follow that thread. I, I I just love what you just called out about um, you know the, both color composition and um, you know story wise the those characters beginning to overlap. Could could you elaborate on that because I think that's a really great point. No, of course, yeah. So so color composition is one of the things about this movie that it's it's one of my favorite films of all time in terms of the 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 way that it uses color not only in terms of how it looks but how it functions um and the the two big colors everyone remembers about this movie are the blues and the reds because first of all there are there are blues and reds of a kind that you really don't see anymore like not i'm i'm not a film over digital purist and that obviously digital can get great results and it can have very very you know, vivid colors, but in terms of how digital grading tends to be used, it tends to it tends to flatten things and have a much more less contrasty color palette than especially like you know really really pushed chemical film grading. And in th- this this film, the kinds of the kinds of saturation that you're seeing with the way that it utilizes the blues and the reds is something that doesn't really happen anymore. So right off the bat, as a viewer, it's really striking. Um, but the function it's serving is also enhancing that because. Blue and red are what is always used when the film is trying to heighten emotions the furthest they can go. Um, you know, the the entire opening Moulin Rouge club sequence, which is the most aggressive the editing ever gets in terms of a pure cuts per minute uh, basis, is just the entire frame is nothing but crimson and blue because it's trying to it's it's washing everything in this layer of unreality. Um, it's in 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 general we'll get to this more when we talk about the production design, but the 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 effect of having all these actual sets and costumes like all these very grounded physical locations but having it then be refract, refracted again through not only the editing but the way that they're shot um with the the step printing and the slow motion and the the, the saturated colors is basically making it back into a fairy tale um at those at those heightened moments and then as it gets more grounded um, in the in the second act of the film, it switches to more of an amber palette. You know, that's that's the color of the two lovers once they're in love. Is most of their scenes together when everything is going well. It's this this yellow. It's not just neutral flesh tones. It's still very heightened, uh, but it's it's more of a neutral color palette overall. It's much more something that you would you'd, you'd see used a lot more commonly in films. Um, and then the blue and red where they come back is in this number, especially the blue. It's 
extremely probably probably the the most monocolor the film ever gets is Satine and the Duke together in his castle. It's just washed in blue. Only before, where that heightened, but that blue is to convey heightened emotions of, you know, awe and excitement and love. Here, it's the inverse emotional peak where this is all about dread and and fear and eventually giving way to you know really awful stuff with the, the Duke basically attempting to to rape her. Um, meanwhile, the the red on McGregor's side is is an also heightened but instead of representing joy or love it's jealousy and torment until he crosses over into the same location that they are and the frame becomes blue and the cross cutting between him and the duke if you if if you're not looking close enough they become indistinguishable and they're they've become the same they're both on the same emotional wavelength where both of them are feeling nothing but jealousy and frustration and fear um, you know, in in that moment, they're the same person, which is ultimately what leads to the tragedy of the rest of the film, which is that for all his bohemian ideals, Ewan is unable to separate his love for Satine from jealousy, which leads directly to the circumstances that result in her death. Um, and I think that the color is hugely responsible for conveying that because it's the thing that your eye is drawn to most in every single frame. Um, there's obviously there's foreground and background and objects in the frame, but the first thing your mind sees is this color is telling me what to feel. And where Roxanne starts having clearly delineated colors, it ends up basically all being a muddle of the same thing and all the emotions are collapsing in on each other and folding in on each other in a way that's really striking. You're you're so and like the the color juxtaposition at the start of the scene is one of the harshest color juxtapositions I can think of. It is warm and bright and high key through the all of the dance like the scenes in the in the theater itself and flatly blue in in the scenes with the Duke. And you're right, and it, it starts to merge as it goes forward, but it's it goes from it's it's so stark, it's it's almost jarring how how juxtaposed the color uses are in those the two different places of those scenes yeah and it's it's especially notable because um the 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 function of blue earlier on in the film is it's it's still that monocolor but there's a lot of white mixed in you know it's when when satine is introduced with sparkling diamond that's when it, it slides to blue but it's a lot more icy color palette Whereas in this scene, it's it's more just a single over overbearing tone where everything is just taken down to the same sort of just range of two or three different blues, and there's there's not a lot of contrast at all going on. And 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 it goes to the lighting too because there's also a lot of use of spotlight um, and like you know like uh, edge lighting, grim lighting going on um, with especially with the dancers specifically in that scene where there's almost none of that. It's like very non um, like um, like. I don't want to say it's like flat lighting, but it's like very like a wall of light on Satine mm-hmm. and the Duke. But you have these like pops of light in the following spotlights in the other rooms, which is another element of juxtaposition between those two scenes. Yeah. And also just the base production design for each set, you know, the, the Moulin Rouge, even as it's being transformed into a theater and losing some of the glitz, it's there's a lot of varied colors in, in the way that it's constructed. There's lots of reds, there's lots of browns, there's, there's yellows and different, very very stark bright colors and the the gothic tower as the duke refers to it is basically just the same the same color palette throughout the entire set you know it's it's lots of stone it's lots of it's lots of night sky there there's nothing in it that even really could pop if it were lit differently because the whole thing is very just a single slate of mood in in the way that it's put together in the set 
there's there's this transition point both in color and light too as um you mcgregor's character walks out of the the room is he singing he's walking out of all the dancers um and he kind of leaves the dance hall behind and the it's it's stark because behind him you can see the three big lights like the basically the spotlights behind him as he's walking out mm-hmm. and and as he crosses into that so it does he doesn't just pop from one one uh color palette and lighting setup to the other there's this very long walk of transition in between those two moments yeah um and it's and in the in the in between is really interesting because in the, that in between is where he gets the most red saturated he'll be for basically the whole movie um you know he just he just plunges from this this palette that it's it, it's still very saturated but there's there's a mix to just pure red pure emotion and then just then immediately from that slides into the other range of the spectrum where it's it, it goes from still heightened to even more heightened than the most heightened in a different direction entirely um which is a really brave thing to do and in a way that's motivated you know there's so many so many contemporary movies they'll use heightened lighting but with no actual conception of how to how to use it in a storytelling sense you know it's i i love the john wick movies and this is not their fault but everyone took the wrong lessons from them to where it's if we have stark neon lighting it it means that it's cool um and in general it feels like so many filmmakers have have ceased actually motivating their use of color as a semiotic tool um you know one of the big exceptions still is 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 Shyamalan in in pretty much all his movies has a strong sense of color work um you know it's it's gotten more subdued since his early days but it's still definitely there and obviously like Spielberg being Spielberg has it but uh, even like really really good contemporary directors who who know better than most of their peers how to how to frame shots there's not so much direct use of storytelling through the colors themselves that they're using which is so going back and watching any movie from this time it's it's notable but especially this one where it's basically the the prominent storytelling tool it's especially heightened where you're like oh this is what that can be it, it's it's so impactful and i you know it's one of the uh, we um andrew allen and i who was a you know, previous guest um on the show talk a lot about how cgi um you know people people look down on it but it's a lot of times it just sort of it, it, the the bad version is enabling laziness because you don't have to think about it until post which is exactly what you shouldn't be doing as a filmmaker like the technique itself doesn't matter but you should have a vision and i think digital color correction and color grading has had a similar impact where directors don't believe they don't need to think about color until they crunch it in a computer somewhere later Mm -hmm. and if you're thinking about it and you've shot it correctly and then you have that tool that's amazing that's awesome but if you haven't thought about it there's nothing you can do in post that's going to fix it and this is sort of the last hurrah of the era where um directors who grew up when you couldn't fix it later in the same way um and thus, not that every director of that past era had knew how to use color. There's always, you know, dozens of directors that have no idea how to use it. But I Absolutely. think that, you know, but it was a time where if you didn't know how to use it, it was obvious and you couldn't even lie to yourself about your ability to fix it later. Um, and, and Baz is very theatrical. And I think he approaches things like theater where, like, every aspect has to meld together from color and production design. And so you get kind of the most version of someone thinking yeah. about color. And this is also, you know, speaking of DI, this is 
There, there's several movies where you watch them and you go, this is the last point in time at which something like this could be made. And it's notable that this released in 2001, which is the same year as Fellowship of the Ring, which is which was one of the first movies to to use DI for color correction. And even even in Fellowship, it wasn't very extensive. It, it was only a complete DI in Two Towers and Return of the King. But this is sort of like coming at the very tail end of photochemical grading, and like right before the surge of everyone starting to switch over to digital intermediate as the default way of of shooting their film um and and yeah like you like you say it's especially in in streaming and television stuff like the 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 go-to is we could completely change the color palette if we want to in post so it's it's fine the the way that a vfx friend of mine put it um talking about like actual digital animation but that applies here too is like for jurassic park um one of the reasons it looks so good, in addition, you know, in addition to just being an inter- a, not only a mix of practical and digital, but also like Spielberg knows how to light for digital, is when they were actually rendering the shots, there was the mindset of, you know, okay, we already put in a ton of work to get 90% of the way there. Let's just put in the extra 10 so it looks amazing. Whereas nowadays, you can get that first 90% done in basically no time at all comparatively. So then that last 10% that really makes it special is so hard to do in comparison that no one wants to do it anymore you know it's the the fundamentals have become comparatively so easy for like producers to just have people put together that no one wants to take the time to work on the last the, that last 10 percent of, of of care and attention that actually really makes it work and that applies not just to visual effects but you know a, a lot of areas of filmmaking um digital filmmaking just tends to get hit with it the worst because you know famously there's no unionization and producers can just use it as a whipping boy to do whatever they want so <laughs> it's, it's a not not a not a great state of things for sure um i i i'm so with you on those uh and so i what i would love to talk about is a little bit about the editing here because there's there's sort of two branches yes. and the first one I'm, I'm interested in and i i want to check this with you because you think about this film a lot and i i spent some time actually watching the edits and and metronoming myself of like counting beats and something that is was really stuck out to me is the edits are not rhythmic in this sequence. They are often off the beat of the music from what I can tell. Is that your perception as well? Are they are there times where we're just like not on the beats as we cut in the way that you would expect? No, yeah, and it's funny because um, one of the common complaints about this movie's editing style is that it's like a music video and that it's designed to cut to beats. So that's not actually the case. It's very uneven. Um, but one of the one of the things that really helps to stabilize that is um, this scene, you know, you shared an article with me um, before we, we started of someone complaining about the scene. And one of the big complaints that they had, and a lot of people have, is that, oh, the dance is poorly shot because you can't actually see any of the choreography. Um, and, you know, a lot of the time that's true that directors just don't know how to shoot dance. You know, one of the, the big examples is in Tom Holland's Cats, which has a lot of problems, despite by by enjoying it a lot on, on its own wacky merits, um, is it doesn't really know how to shoot the choreography properly. You know, it's, there's a lot of there's a lot of cuts on the beat. There's not a lot of times where it holds on a shot so you can see things. And and that sort of ranges all over in when musicals even have dance anymore, which they increasingly don't. But I don't think that that complaint can be levied here because it's all about understanding the function of what the dance is doing. The dance here is not the dance is not conveying emotion. The dance is keeping time. The dance is turned into the rhythmic element of the scene uh, where every single every single arm movement and footstep and 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 timed movement of the body is keeping the rhythm of the scene going so that the editing can be more frenetic and it can cut in between beats it can cut 
off the melody and you're still able to keep track of where things are because you still have that steady pulse of the dancers in between cuts um whereas the emotion is conveyed by the melody and the orchestration and the coloring um so it's just that the choreography is is serving a different function so that the editing can take on a life of its own you know sort of how uh, in you know in the Who in the 60s and 70s famously they didn't have a proper rhythm section because Keith Moon the drummer was playing it like a melody and the guitarist Pete Townsend had to do rhythm guitar to keep the band in time instead uh, it's like a complete inversion of the way these things are supposed to work but it still does work because different elements are taking on other elements functions to keep the whole moving that's I, I really appreciate you calling out the like editing along with the dance because I mean I'm I'm if I'm uh, obnoxiously usually annoyed by musical directors film directors not having any idea how to shoot choreography not knowing how to edit around choreography and on the surface of it you get the complaints that you're talking about where people are like you can't see the choreography but the the difference is that Lerman is like to your point using the choreography and the editing in practice with each other to create a sense of discordance and urgency and um, things are not right in this scene and and so the mood is is in sync even though we're not seeing the choreography in wide shot in in perfect long compositions we're getting a, a synchronous mood of the two of them and it's synchronous because they're not synchronous because the editing isn't rhythmic in the way that you would normally expect because it's not directly on the beats everything is is doesn't feel right and that's the mood of this scene and that's effective that isn't a mistake it's intentional Mm-hmm. I love one of the most useful things I've ever heard about film and comparing it to other medium is um, a guy called Paul Santagata, who was years ago was on a, a film podcast called called Down in Front that I learned a lot from when I was a kid starting out. One of the things that he said, it was it was they were doing a commentary on the on the Potter films, like a marathon where they were doing all of them in a row. Uh, and by this point, it had gotten to like the late night. So like insights were in short supply but then out of nowhere he says this thing where comparing the way that a certain scene of the films is numbers to the books he says in a film you have to feel something before you understand it and in a book you have to understand it before you feel it and moulin rouge i think is a great example of that at wherein it's it doesn't particularly matter that the scene is not coherence in a way that classical filmmaking would would describe it because it's not about having you understand it on a visual level and on a level of being able to just like lay out the whole geography of the whole scene in your head it's about making you feel the emotions that are riding through the scene so that by feeling those emotions you can intuitively understand what the action is that's unfolding um and i think that that's a really valuable thing that people tend to overlook because there's such a a sense of there's an objective way to edit that is correct and there's an objective way to shoot that's correct yep you're you're so right and there you know there's a a um you know a a overly repeated axiom of like you have to know the rules before you can break them and and there's a there's a truth to that in that like if you go back and i'll be curious abby when you watch strictly ballroom what your take is it's another movie that's a lot i'm i adore it but i never expect anyone else to actually like it (laughs) um but you know it's a movie that is basically a dance movie it's a ballroom dance movie and it's clear from that movie that lerman knows how to shoot dance he is extremely aware of how you shoot and edit choreography if dancing is the point of what you're doing and so this isn't the work of someone who doesn't understand dance doesn't understand the theatrical uh, sorry theatricality of musicals it's someone who understands it very intimately and is explicitly breaking the rules of your expectations to create an impact and that's very different from flailing around 
Mm-hmm. And you could even see that in in this movie, you know, in in other scenes, you know, this the the big set pieces like uh, that I think of when it comes to this frenetic style of editing are this and like the opening Moulin Rouge just intro, and then during the climax in in the production of Spectacular Spectacular. But through the rest of the film, it's obvious that he knows how to frame shots and when to hold and when to cut. And it's not a thing where it's a, it's not it's not a Bohemian Rhapsody thing where watching it you can see an editor actively drowning trying to piece together coverage. You know it. You don't get this, this scene the way it is from someone who has no idea what they're doing. The level of control you have to have to bring the rhythms of this together the way that they are is is such that this is one of those movies where if I had to direct it, I would shoot myself. Like, I would have no idea how to even begin. And to be able to not only have a vision for that, but to execute it, even though so many different fragments are coming apart, is is really special, I think, and really shows a degree of control that it's easy to miss if your brain is just quick cutting equals a, a, a lack of appropriate coverage on set. <laughs> yeah, and, and you can even tell because his freneticness in the scene isn't even, and it's not even in a very um, intentional way. There are times where the cutting is not rhythmic, but, but closer to um, keeping with the music, and then there are moments like when... Um, um, the Argentinian says it'll drive you mad that it is cutting all over the place. We're getting like 15 reaction shots in a couple of seconds and including um, lots of weird step printing moments and everything. Like it's everything thrown at once, but it's not that through the entire scene. He tactically chooses moments to go much more bonkers than he does in the rest of the scenes. And it's it's punctuation instead of just endless flailing, basically. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. So I want to ask, can I ask you, called out the step printing earlier. That was, once again, I, I, I very appreciate you completely getting ahead of every question I want to ask because <laughs> you called it out in this. Um, I, I want to be upfront that step printing is one of those techniques that personally almost never works for me, not because it's not an effective tool, but because it grates in a way that I always notice it. It's like a purely psychological thing. Um, but mm-hmm. this is what, but Lerman is one of the few people that uses step printing, maybe more than anyone I've seen. He loves step printing. Um, and it's very all over this scene, including like the, when he's saying, um, it'll drive you mad. I'm curious, like Talk to me about the impact of stack printing, specifically in the scene. Like, what what is it going for, and what does it do for you here? No, yeah. So, in in general, I think that that part of step printing is that is that we react, you know, against uh, in in this, this our, the current age of like film criticism is just it it is obviously aged in a way that doesn't really we don't really see it anymore in terms of visual language because you can just shoot at a higher frame rate for 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 slow motion these days you know it's 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 something it's it's sort of like it's sort of like zooms in a 70s movie where like you're watching it and like this this breaks with how cinematic language is constructed in in the day that we live in and so your your brain is automatically going to like take a step back um and be like oh that's that's not quite right but I think that that effect is mitigated in in Moulin Rouge in general, in this scene specifically, because of those editing rhythms. Among other, you know, it's the the way that the rhythms are constructed, everything is is sort of thrown off and off kilter, um, and it's 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 designed to not you're not able to just lock in on a specific speed and pace. And the step printing is is in tandem with that, in that it it takes the flow of a scene and makes it sort of herky-jerky and interrupted, but in a way that already is blending with the way the rest of the scene is constructed. Um, and it's, it's like I said, part of this, part of this movie is taking 
real elements, you know, uh, insane sets and production design that are all done practically. There's a lot of chintzy green screen that's deliberately chintzy, but the Moulin Rouge itself is pretty much all practical. But then in order to make that of a pay, of a piece with the rest of the film, they're then deliberately filtering it through all these different speed ramps and and editing uh, like edit, editing rhythms that make it feel disjointed and unfamiliar. Um, and so when that happens, the step the step printing it just naturally falls into place where it's it's an unnatural vibe, but it just makes everything feel a bit more like a fever dream or a hallucination, which is the intended effect. Um, so what, since it's going for that emotional that emotional register, it works a lot better than just step printing to have slow motion in the middle of a fight scene would because it's rather than serving a utility it's serving an emotional need i i i really appreciate that breakdown and and you you mentioned something that i i just clicked in my head that i hadn't thought of until now which is that 2001 is in some ways the last hurrah of step printing because the other movie that I think of that has step printing that was big is Fellowship of the Ring. Actually, so we have two kind of down under filmmakers um, hanging on to step printing in the last days of of using it because Fellowship has it, but I don't think the other two films use it at all. But it's it's in the scenes with the Urukai an awful lot. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's interesting. It's it's Lerman and Jackson kind of carrying the torch of an old version of cinematic language, um, and I think both using it in similar ways and fairly effectively. Yeah, and I think that one of the reasons that I I like all the Lord of the Rings movies, and like I, I I love most of them, but Fellowship is far and away my favorite. And I think part of that is is the way that it's so that it's so obviously a bridging of two eras where you have all these all these different old school techniques mixed among the new in a way that i think grounds it that that it it grounds it in a way that two towers and return of the king can get away from because those are basically jackson openly embracing his new toys to a much bigger degree um the the biggest, the biggest way that shows, and not to not to get on Fellowship of the Ring, I'll end this pretty quickly, but like, is Fellowship has so much more forced perspective tricks to get the hobbits tiny, whereas you watch Two Towers and Return of the King, and there's a lot more obvious compositing going on, like green screening the actors onto a human-sized set, and not only has that aged worse, and that is a lot more obvious, but there's there's a lot less charm to it in that. It's it's an obvious you know harbinger of digital filmmaking to come versus this blending of the two worlds in a way that even though at the time it was obviously you know it was pushing things forward in a really great way, in retrospect I think is less successful than that mirrors the first one pulls off. I I, I very appreciate that it's it's um it's there there's a there's a, a ma- you called it the green screen in this too there's a, a movie magic moment in this too that. I think we wouldn't get now, and I don't think that's, I don't mean that as a qualitative statement. I think that people who are capable of movie magic will always be capable of movie magic with any tool. Uh, but there's a moment when um, Hugh McGregor, when he's coming out of the dance hall um, that we were talking about before, and when he's in the dance hall, there's three big lights on the stage that are lighting a lot of the stuff. And as he comes out, you can see those three big lights behind him in the windows, and there's dancers dancing, and it gives the illusion of him walking out of the theater but there is no theater on the set that he's looking at he's walking onto something where there is no dance hall behind him and they've recreated that by putting three big lights behind those windows and having like four or five couples dancing close to the lights to give shadows against the window to make it feel like he is coming out of the exact set that he was just in but it's it's fake but it's a purely ingenuity kind of fake 
in the moment that I, I really respected when I learned about how they pulled that off. Yeah, and there's so many small things like that where it's things that, as a viewer, you don't even think about them, but so many different like sh- shortcuts to to trick a viewer's brain into grounding the scene, um, which again is sort of is sort of of a, of a piece with the entire movie is about short circuiting your brain to hijack it to hijack it by injecting the most emotion into it possible, and that's a that's a, obviously a, a technique based example of the same thing versus emotions based, but it's still a really compelling case for all you have to do is is find the broadest elements to focus on and the rest of the Bible follow. You know, they have those those spotlights emphasized so much on the set that then when your brain sees them, without you even consciously realizing it, it there's automatically a continuity there that you wouldn't have if they had just decided, we're just going to, instead of doing this practically, we're just going to have him on a green screen that we're then going to composite the, composite the theater entrance behind him in. You know, you could have that, but if you don't have that eye for maintaining the the transition between this and what came before it's not going to come off the same way which is again why just purely shooting for coverage and planning to fix it all in post results in stuff that looks like shit because you don't (laughs) actually have anything in your head to maintain consistent geography um so even if you could have the same the same environments behind someone there's no actual like there's no elements to foreground that and make it stick in the viewer's mind it, totally right, and and I think this is a good time to actually talk about um, you know sets and costuming on this movie because it's a big part of the impact. Something I want to call out as we get into it is that something that I haven't seen very often, which is that um, Lerman's longtime production designer Catherine Martin, who I think has been a partner of his um, in that for his entire career. I think it, I think she's working on all of his movies. She's always been the production designer, but has increasingly been a partner in costume design. And so in this case, we have costume design by Catherine Martin and Angus Strathy. So it's two people. And I'm fascinated by that because there is a coherency between sets and costume in this movie that you can you can achieve other ways. I want to be clear, not saying that you can't, but it's very interesting that Lerman has indexed towards working with someone who's both his production designer and then a costume co-person. Um, and I think that comes out in this film in, in some interesting ways. And I'm curious for your thoughts on costume and production. No, yeah, I think that that that, that unity there is really crucial um, because because this so much of this movie is again about using aesthetics to heighten emotion if there isn't if there isn't a unity between the departments there it's going to be a really obvious disjoint in a way that it wouldn't be necessarily in another film you know it's not to say that the actors are part of the set dressing because that's that's demeaning in a way that i don't mean but but in general the the so much so much of the of the visuals is based on on movements and drawing your eye to certain lines that you really you you need to have the the overall aesthetic be such a way that the, the costumes are correctly drawing your eyes to the part of the set that they're supposed to you know if especially because everything here is just so so glitzy and over the top if you have the costume designer completely do their own thing and the production designer completely do, the, do their own thing on the sets the clash you could get as a result of everything going over the top in different directions could be nightmarish. You really need to have a unity of purpose and a sense of where these things are going to go and how they're going to inform each other for it to come together and and get that overall effect that you want through the fragmentation. I the, and it's it's interesting because you get to this this version of something happening in the scene, which I didn't realize. This is something else I picked up from the audio commentary this weekend, which is that all of the dancers are in 
basically their underclothes um, as they're practicing. <laughs> and the reason they went with that is because they did not have the budget to fully costume the number of dancers they needed for this scene as like amongst all the other scenes they had to do. And they were, they had watched a Renoir film about the can-can and I can't think of which film it is. Um, and in that they had learned that the other would practice in their underclothes. And so they decided to do that as it, but it's, it's so effective actually as a, as a mode because the under the underclothes of the dancers are still shaped like dancing clothes but they're very <laughs> simple and so you have this like very big theatrical set and this very intricate dance number and they're in clothes that are sort of like a washed out white version of the the shape the silhouette of an actual dance costume and i find that effect really interesting and it's out of budgetary reasons but i think it really works here yeah, and I also think it works because obviously, you know, to to to, 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 to use a cliche, the whole scene is about laying bare the emotions and 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 basically vulnerability and emotional nakedness and the inability to keep those in check behind a costume being what undoes Satine ultimately, but also McGregor not being able to control his passions, um, and and having those dancers stripped down that way. Again, even if it's not something the viewer consciously picks up on, it intuitively is is showing the layers of glitz being removed, and you're getting down to the meat of the the emotion behind things, um, and the vulnerability there. I, that's such a good point because you're right. Because there's an element through this movie up to this scene of um, uh, McGregor and Kidman's characters being in in sincere love. You know, they're they're sincerely in love, but. There's still the gloss of the Moulin Rouge, of the theater, of his writing, of all of these things. And this is the moment of dealing with the reality of the world that they've been skating across the surface of up to this point and can no longer ignore the reality of it. And and so stripping away the – keeping the silhouette of it but not the glamour of it really plays into those emotions of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that – the uh, the the whole the emotion of the piece the sorry frame frame it for a second but yeah the 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 emotions are probably a a good a good way to transition into talking about not only the the emotional core of the scene but the performances um because obviously um McGregor and Kidman are making some choices in this movie um and I think that. Of all the performers, they and Broadbent are the most vital, and that's because if any of them doesn't, if any of those three doesn't commit 100%, the movie falls apart. Um, and you can not not only if they don't commit, but if they don't commit to to such a different variety of modes. You know, the earlier early in the film where it's like all obnoxious the, the way that I put it in a review was that the, the comedy isn't relief; it's an assault. Um, you know, it's it's just this this barrage of of shrill, obnoxious jokes and double entendres, and the the only way that it works is that is that everyone is so over the top and committed to it that it 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 becomes absurd in a way that's really really funny. But after that point, in order to buy their love, you have to have all the actors just completely leaning into it fearlessly and not having any any reserve or any any hesitancy about getting emotionally naked. Uh, and you especially see that in McGregor in this scene. You know, toward, toward the end, he's just screaming teeth bared at the camera in a way that as an actor is really hard to make yourself do because you're losing a sense of self-preservation and being like, 
I don't care if this makes you look ridiculous. I'm doing it because this is the right choice for the scene and for the character. It is what they're feeling. And if they hadn't risen to that level to match the formalism going on, it still wouldn't work, even with all the amazing formal qualities going on, because that heart there of the performance would still be missing. And instead, they just fucking go for it. Um, and it's, to an extent that I'm not sure I've ever seen in a, in, a, in the exact same way in any other kind of film. Like, Lerman achieves his goal in that if, if you don't speak English, like, just seeing these performers' faces, you'll be able to grasp exactly what's going on. And that's so fucking valuable. And it's it's something that I don't know that we've ever really seen from either of them again, especially McGregor, you know, who's still great in other stuff, but the the amount of just letting himself go and be this character is something that I don't think he's ever really reached for in the same way since. Um, there was an alternate path for McGregor that existed in the like late 90s, early 2000s. This is the apex of. He's never, I, I agree with you, that he's never really gone for it. There was... A, a very garish but I, movie I like of Danny Boyle's called A Life Less Ordinary that was him and Car- uh, Cameron Diaz, um, which actually is the first time I ever heard Ewan McGregor sing and realized he could sing because he has a musical number in that sequence, in that movie. And it's another movie where he is at a heightened level. And, and Boyle isn't as out of his head as um, as Lerman, so it's not anywhere near what we're talking about here. But that was, like I think, like probably like 98, 99 or so when that came out and so there was a like brief moment where where mcgregor was acting like a theater star basically in his in his mode and this really captured it and you're right he um we haven't really gotten that since and and kidman especially have not gotten that since because kidman tends to get very understated reserved roles that's generally the mode people cast her in um and lerman really lets her cut loose in this movie yeah, I I do wonder how working on this movie um, might have might have helped his experience with the Star Wars prequels in a very different way, um, because you you watch you know obviously this was filming this was filming at the same time Attack of the Clones was filming they actually some pickups they shot on the set across from Attack of the Clones because Attack of the Clones has a filming in Australia, um, and you part of this is that McGregor and the Phantom Menace just frankly doesn't have anything to do. You know, that movie is largely a waste of his character, but in, in Attack of the Close and Revenge of the Sith, there, there's, a, there's a confidence there that just was not there at all in, in the first film, and I wonder if part of that is him leading into that unselfconsciousness in a different mode, but still being able to just be, whereas a lot of the other performances in the prequels that get more flack, you know, Christensen and Portman especially, there's almost a mannered quality to them where like, you can see in the actor's eyes that they're aware of the burden of what they're doing and they're terrified, whereas McGregor just goes for it and he's in the role in a way that none of the others really are in a way that I think, you know, I, I respect the prequels in a lot of ways um, and I think that Christensen is better than people give him credit for, but there's, I think it's not controversial to say there's no one else in those movies that is operating on the level that he is, just feeling free to to give a performance versus consciously giving a performance yep yeah he's he's he he became very fearless in his his performances um and and this is this is a a role that you couldn't you could not have fear and pull off you'd have you have to go for it in a lerman movie or you'd probably stick out in a way that would be bleak 
at that moment. So um, he really digs into like, let's just let's just show it. Um, and I think it's important in this scene because thematically what's going on in the scene is, I mean, obviously not saying anything like deep here, but it's about jealousy. But what I think is interesting is that it is colliding different versions of jealousy against each other that are are underneath the same thing and so we have um this it's a very masculine kind of jealousy on two sides you have the duke who believes that his money should buy love and you have you mcgregor's character who fears that money buys love and and then in the middle of it you have all the people in the moulin rouge telling him about this jealousy but my read on it is mostly they're just tired of people from the outside coming in and making it difficult for them to do their work. And really, we just want these guys to stop this crap so they can put their show on. And and so I find the collision of different views of this world very interesting thematically in this scene. Oh, absolutely. And and thematically, I think in general, the movie is a lot more intelligent than people would necessarily give it credit for. Because the emotion is so heightened, it's easy to not even think of it on an intellectual level. Um, but this is a movie ultimately about bohemian ideals being left dead in the ditch by being dead in the ditch because they tried to compromise with money um and you know it's the the ultimate tragedy is that toulouse's troop and mcgregor especially are all convinced that they can live these bohemian ideals of beauty freedom truth and love on money's dime and not have it change them when in fact the instant that you let your bohemian ideals become dependent on the rich and powerful they automatically lose their teeth um and satine and the other members of the, of the moulin rouge they recognize the way that the game is played and they're able to lose their egos and play it and even though mcgregor is playing the same game he's unable to reconcile himself with it because he's convinced that he has high ideals and that's ultimately what dooms all of them is that they're simultaneously in bed with capital and refuse to admit that they are whereas if they just would see that they themselves are prostitutes in a different sense it would all be fine (laughs) and it's all happening in a moment because you're right because satine does understand it as a member of the troop who's been here that 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 there is a compromise and so there's no there's no immediate um, uh, rejection of the need to compromise if you've decided you want that compromise. And so while while she is w- willingly playing a part on behalf of the thing that matters to her, which is their relationship and the show, and doing her best to ride along with things, he is angry at her for it because it breaks his ideals of – of what love is supposed to be. And so he's casting his own things. It's actually a very ugly, this is, I mean, obviously this is an ugly scene, but it's ugly on Ewan McGregor's character's level. And I really appreciate what you called out earlier of him crossing over into becoming the same as the Duke, because I think that can get lost and jealousy can be seen as sort of like an artifact of love that you just deal with, as opposed to the antithesis of love in this case. And as soon as he gives into not being able to see where if we want this life, there's a compromise that's going to come with it, and we're going to have to own what comes with that. He just rege- he resents her for doing that, and it's it's an extremely unpleasant sequence that I think a lot of people miss exactly how intentionally unpleasant the, them- the themes are here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like that that ultimately manifests in, in in one of the ugliest moments in any movie I can think of, where he's in the climax, he's running after her, going, "Why can't I pay you? Why can't I pay my whore?" And it's 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 the lowest that 
basically that almost anyone in the movie gets morally, and it's only because he eventually can can decide to open himself up and forgive that he's redeemed from that. And even at that point, it's too late to really do anything. He's given her catharsis before she dies, but he's still directly brought about these events where you know you 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 start the movie. Uh, in the future with him writing and the Moulin Rouge is dead you know they it's it's been lost the Duke had the deeds he's won Satine is dead everyone else has been has been has been turned out of their home solely because he couldn't learn to forgive and love without possession until it was too late it, it's this is you know I've always liked this scene this has always been a scene that I've really appreciated digging back into it um, I did not appreciate exactly how much was going on in the sequence how how not just pivotal it is to the movie but how many layers of the themes it's working at and you called it out early as a, like, like you know an entrance like early act two kind of kind of sequence and I, I hadn't really thought about it that way but you're absolutely right this is this is the moment that rips the facade that we built up in act one away and forces everyone to deal with the reality of the world that they didn't want to have to do that they were hoping love would lead themselves from having to deal with these these realities and once faced with them including Satine who is in a moment um you know her the the moment it turns ugly for her when the duke gets um basically attacks her um is is seeing him seeing you McGregor's character and realizing that her actions um he can't deal with them and and putting herself in danger on his behalf, basically, um, of of saying no at that moment, which she has every right to do, and the Duke has no right to do what he's doing. It's but but that moment is on his behalf as much as anything else, and it's her dealing with the same thing of reality being smashed in her face. That if she wants this relationship, she's with someone who cannot understand the choices that she's making, and mm-hmm. it's it's equally bleak on that side because it, she's pushed into that sequence by. By him as much as anything else yeah and and you know Ziedler is a very ugly character in his own way you know he's he's manipulative he's he doesn't he doesn't really love anyone he 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 has just enough he has just enough self-pity um and pity for others that he ultimately turns around but again only when it's too late but he at least recognizes what they are in a way that McGregor doesn't where Ziedler can see this whole thing is predicated on you selling yourself and you are you are directly ruining our chances here whereas mcgregor you know he understands that the whole thing is predicated on satine selling herself and he doesn't want that but he still wants the show you know it's 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 accepting the reality of on what you on what you think is accepting the reality in order in order to get what you want and then immediately being unable to deal with the consequence whereas at least everyone else understands who they are you know Ziedler on his face is uglier than McGregor but he has never pretended to be anything else whereas McGregor is trying to have it both ways in a way that is completely selfish um and it's like what what did you think was going to happen what you shook his hand what did you think was going to happen (laughs) It's it's like the the bones of the of classical tragedy of you know of, of the the modern cruddy version of tragedy is just something bad happening but the the beauty of classical tragedy is that none of this would happen if you could just change your nature if you could just act slightly outside your nature or slightly outside of who you've decided you are you would you'd be able to do it and in this case for him if he would be willing to say okay the show isn't important if this isn't important then he him and Satine could 
do something. They can make a choice that would get them out of it. On the other hand, if this was – if staying with the show, if doing these things was important, he could again work to change his nature to accept the compromises for it. But he can't. He's unable and unwilling to act outside of these things that he feels are his ideals and they they kill him. And this is the moment when when the the reality of his inability to accept the situation as it is um, dooms them all, basically. Mm-hmm. And his inability to accept the situation also leads to paralysis in general. You know, it's it's very notable that the person who saves Satine is not Christian, who just goes home to his home to sulk. It's 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 Chocolat from the from the the Moulin Rouge is able to step in and, and take control of the situation and save her um, because he's acting in a way that is not selfish, whereas McGregor is completely consumed by his own emotion uh, in a way that he may think is based on love but is unable to actually translate into care for another human being. I, I Thank you for calling out Chocolat, which is I, I want to note as one of the many signs that Baz Luhrmann is not some hyperactive sugar high director who doesn't know what he's doing. The visual <laughs> language of Chocolat realizing and deciding that something might be bad and moving off to go see what's happening is seated into the middle of the chaos of the scene. It's very clear that we have a moment where Chocolat decides to to leave the theater, to head upstairs, and it's clear. It's right there. It speaks to what's going to happen later. No one who isn't in control of their visual language does that. That was not unintentional. It was it's right there for you to see. And I think that's kind of a keystone to understanding that Lerman is a lot, but not in, not out of control. Yeah. And I think with Chocolat, the most confusing the scene ever gets is right at the end where it is, it is not clear visually what happens with him and the Duke the first time you watch the scene. There's the, there's the sound effect of the punch, but you don't actually comprehend it until after the scene has already taken place. And I think that that is very much intentional. You know, it's 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 a denied catharsis in a way that, you know, they show Kibbit herself wondering what's going on before they then cut to his face more clearly and you understand what's happened versus in the climax when the Duke is rushing forward with a gun and Ziegler punches him that's constructed in a perfectly coherent way where you can totally understand what's happening despite the frenetic editing. It is very much a choice here to to have that final moment be one of confusion and you're you're sort of you leak out of the scene versus coming out of it in a strong moment whereas in the finale they have that emotional catharsis only to then topple it on its head and reveal that no it's too late even though you you're feeling this high you haven't won. Um, I think the opposite effect of those is is very much intentional because it's clear that Lerman knows what to do to bring that information across and he is deliberately obscuring it here. I, I love that call out because you're right. There's nothing – this is not a moment of, of heroism. It's a moment of temporary escape and by editing it and shooting it that way, you get the escape but not any, any catharsis out of it. Um, yeah. So I, I, I have hit the things on my questions, but I want to make sure we've talked about everything that you want to on the scene. Is there, are there, is there something we have not touched on relating to the scene that you want to talk about? Uh, no, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think. Um, um, I think one, one thing about it that, that's really fascinating to me um, is... This scene is, in terms of the musical numbers, one of the most grounded in reality, in that there's a lot of the other musical numbers where they're at their most heightened. Um, there's a lot of of 
obvi- very very obvious chintzy trickery going on. Like the, the the big love numbers are the elephant love medley and your song, and both of those have have a ton of green screen elements going on. And in this one, it's the way that they achieve that effect is almost solely because of the cross cutting, um, which is we talked we talked about the the rhythms of the editing itself. But something else that I think is is really fascinating is the way that it achieves spatial dislocations through the editing as well, um, in terms of jumping from location to location. Um, in that there's in addition to the edits themselves not having rhythm, the way that they switch from place to place is is not structured in a way that's predictable um they set your expectations that way in the very first bit of the song where the i i don't remember the actress's name but the one who plays the uh i'm just gonna say bitch dancer which is unfair but like the character is constructed to just be awful um when her foot first comes down and then immediately cuts to satine pulling her glove off and so that is a very constructed moment that feels as though oh okay so we're gonna be we're gonna be cross cutting back and forth based on rhythm, and then instead what ends up happening is not only are within the scenes themselves being the the rhythms not falling properly, but the way that it jumps between the Boulan Rouge and the castle uh, is not in any sort of rhyme or reason. It's it it doesn't happen on a set basis. It doesn't happen with a set with a set of actions. It just is leaping back and forth seemingly at random i don't think it is at random i think it's just as a way of 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 unmooring you in in space uh but then especially when mcgregor leaves the moulin rouge and is headed back to to his home and at that point at that point it becomes almost impossible to determine who is where because his home is now being lit exactly the same as the scene that they're in um and i think that that's it's a really cool way of where before they would achieve that dislocation through use of green screen and compositing and having actors go to these fantasy locations that aren't real here you you still have some of that where where we you know when mcgregor is looking up at the castle very much obviously that is that is not a practical shot that is that is because i'm compositing two elements together but the rest of it is pretty much all just using tricks in the edit to cross time and space in a way that the rest of the movie doesn't really ever go for you know it's they'll any other time there's cross-cutting in the film was between two characters in the same place where you know whether it's whether it's kidman and broadband both in the show must go on or the different the different characters in the different theater areas in the finale where it's Toulouse up in the rafters and the duke down in the audience or gregory kibben on stage but it's all in one space whereas in this one it's it's crossing locales in a way that eventually breaks down to the point that you can't tell where anything is anymore and that's that's just something additional about the editing that I thought was really cool. And not only are the rhythms being interrupted, but our actual sense of location is being completely thrown off in a way that, again, is intentional. And I think is really, really the way that it proceeds until eventually just all converges in on itself in an event horizon is really striking to me. That's a really, I had not thought about that. The, the, the change from the rest of the movie because it's been a while since I watched the movie, the whole movie. And I'd only really watched the scene like a, half dozen times coming into this and so i hadn't been thinking of it outside of that and you're you're so right and that's a it's really interesting the the difference of the impact on that thank you for calling that out um so I, i'm curious before you wrap up you said that this isn't your favorite i guess musical scene in the movie um so i'm just curious what is what's your favorite musical number in moulin rouge um my my favorite musical number um is solely on its own is probably a tie between your song elephant love medley um just because your song is basically the make or break moment where it's like this is the turn that is going to 
either sway you on the movie or just make you completely reject it. You know, it's 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 the point where after all this just broad comedy sincerity finally leaks in, you know, and you and you see it on Kibben's face. You know, she's just shocked completely from from just this absurd like physical sexual hijinks into like truly seeing Christian for the first time, which is like what the audience is supposed to feel, um, and it. It, it completely transports you along with her in a way that's really striking. And then Elephant Love Medley, just as an emotional attachment, when I saw it the first time in the theater, like I said, I was really not sure how I felt about it. And then I realized in Elephant Love Medley that I suddenly could not stop smiling watching it. And it was just really special. I was like, oh my God, this is, this is completely just escalating beyond where it was before. And I'm in, I'm completely in. And I say that with the rest of the movie. And just being conscious of that switch was really special to me at the time. Um, I also think that the the finale itself on stage is undervalued, it, and it's it's understandable because none, none of it is original. It's all building on previous melodies, but the way that it weaves them all together and brings everything to to such a, a frenetic climax, so that basically all the all the different times that you've had your emotions engaged before are all coming back together in one big number to bring everything to the biggest catharsis possible before it then crashes all down, is really really fucking good um when i last saw this prior to rewatching for the podcast i i saw it at the same theater because they had another 35 millimeter screening like a year and a half later um and the uh, the moment that ziedler punches the duke and everything is you know and you see feel like you've won the entire audience just bursts into applause and it was like the one of the purest moments of just complete cinematic emotions sweeping up everyone that i've ever seen and i i adore it so much for that effect that it, it manages to build to that's so that's, that, that's three numbers not one but but yeah it's hard to pick it, it's it's extremely hard to pick and i'm I, I i share actually that exact um list myself and um i i'm really thankful for you calling out um the hindi sad diamonds um conclusion which is i think slept on because it's it's wrapped in the emotional climax of the movie but is a bombastic and amazing um piece of work that they put together so yeah, thank and you. just yeah, of course. I I love I, I the, the thing about the finale that I especially love is is again a thing where watching it on would uh, could appear objectively incorrect. Where it's like what with, uh, you have the the dual fake out right where where the Duke's uh, bad servant gets taken out and they're having the triumphant finale, and then the gun slides down to the Duke's feet and the Duke grabs it. And when I was watching the movie for the first time, I was convinced what was going to happen was the Duke was going to shoot Satine and cut the climax off. And when that didn't happen, I was like, well, you, you, you play the same beat out twice that, that you, you could have said this a bit tighter, but on rewatches, it's like, no, this is perfect. You have to trick the audience. You have to pull a magic trick and you have to convince the audience that no, they've won, even though the audience already knows that Satine is dead. And by by making it such an obvious thing where it's you already have had the first fake out and they're like, okay, this is going to be he's going to shoot her. It's for real. By having that also be a fake out, you completely disrupted their emotions to the point that even though they know Satine is going to die in in your emotions, you already feel as though it's been a happy ending and she's won. So then it's that much more crushing when the curtain comes down and it's like, no, you already knew how this was going to end. Just because the movie has made you forget it doesn't mean that it's not coming. Um, And the effect of that crashing into you is just so fucking awful and like going from that to McGregor just breaking down into sobs is one of my favorite tragic moments in anything ever it's just so fucking heartbreaking 
it's so good it's so good and it's it's i mean it's been such a pleasure talking about this movie with you and this scene honestly this is one of my favorite conversations i've had um on the show so i really appreciate you coming on and and talking about this this was fantastic no this has been great and thank you so much for having me you know i i this is one of my favorite things of all time and even though i completely understand why many people don't like it i will i will shill for it at any opportunity because it's just it's so fucking good i love it well promise me that when you watch um strictly ballroom love or hate whatever you end up thinking um let me know what you think um it was my introduction oh, to basil Lerman, so i'll be very interested all of the things that are both good and bad about moulin rouge are in microcosm in that movie so just just know the arc of of what you'll feel um whether you like it or not it'll it'll assault you and then maybe win you over or maybe not but the expect expect baz Luhrmann to show up for that movie no so. yeah i'm i'm really excited to get to, to that and all his other stuff and then he has his elvis biopic coming out soon so which is kind of perfect um yeah. like baz Luhrmann's las vegas era elvis is definitely going to be something whether or not it's good um, I will be there. To, I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna promise that my uh, my catch up for Baz Luhrmann. I owe Great Gatsby at least a watch very soon. So that's my takeaway from this. Um, but before we before we wrap up, Abby, is there anything you would um, like to tout? Um, where people can find you online? Anything that you would like them to see? No. Yeah. I'm. I'm on Twitter at, at @goodhunterabby. Um, I, I don't have that much creative to show at the moment. I'm hoping that will change in future. But as you mentioned earlier in the episode, there's always uh, me and Carol Grant and, and my girlfriend Natalie will do like gaming streams occasionally if anyone cares to drop into those. You can watch me be opinionated and frequently wrong about movies and books and that sort of thing. Uh, and yeah, that is where I am for now. Awesome. Well, go go hunt down Good Hunter Abby on Twitter. Um, Abby's Letterboxd is also phenomenal. Um, uh, when uh, her reviews come up there, I'm one of the people I always look for thoughts on. So um, go hunt oh. her down there as well. And um, I, thank you again for joining me, Abby. It's been a real pleasure. And um, uh, everyone for listening, I really appreciate it. And we'll be back again soon with a new episode. Thank you so much. <laughs>